Hey, this morning we're going to be in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And so we're going to pick up uh, from where we left off last week in 3, 5 through 11. So as you're opening up and turning there, uh, I just want to kind of draw your attention to how Paul ended this section, right? How he ended 3, 5 through 11. Notice this, this great kind of unifying theme that he left them with in there. He says, here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so he leaves them with this terrific statement of unity. He leaves them with this terrific statement of kind of this is who you are, this is what he has left you with, and, and we read this and we recognize that he's not looking and saying, Philip, this is who you are, and Bob, this is who you are, and Pat, this is who you are, and Tom, this is who you are. But he looks at them as a diverse group of people that have all of these different backgrounds. And so they have Scythian, they have Barbarian, they have Gentile, they have uh, Jew. And so all of these different people, and he says, now listen, all of you, in all of your various differences, you find yourself being one in him. Now why is that important? It's, it's, it's radically important because we see some of these same divides occur in any given body that you're a part of, right? And so we find people in, in ideological shifts. We find people in, in political shifts. We find people in socioeconomic differences. We find people in ethnic differences. And then we find people have just different opinions. I love the color blue. You love the color orange. What's wrong with you? Nobody prefers the color orange. And so we see people, well, apparently we have some. And so we see people that have a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different views in any number of given things. But to this group of people from diverse and different backgrounds, he says to them, he renews this call, he says, put on then. Put on then. And, and in fact, make this purpose declaration, make this decision, change the way you live, let your manner of existence be, change who you are, and put on these properties. It's this command that runs throughout. So let's read 12 through 14 together. Paul writes and says, put on then, is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And it's pretty fantastic when we go down through and that Paul is recalling this idea of, of putting back on something that he began in chapter 3 and verse 10 where he said, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we see that he, he moves through and he, he describes three really particular things there. Look at what he says, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, why is this important? It's decidedly important because of what I want you to see and what it's important that we recognize is that first, these terms are used as a description of Israel in the Old Testament. So let's look at some of these examples. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God, speaking of Israel, says these things. He says, you are a people 
holy to the Lord your God. And what does that mean? It means they are separate and they are distinct. God has allowed his blessing and his favor to rest upon them, his rules to guide how they live, so that they would be separate and distinct, so that when people encounter them, they'd say, you do things differently than we do. Where does this distinctiveness come from? And they would say that it comes from the Lord because he has declared us to be a separate and to be a distinct people. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he says, listen, as God surveyed the earth, he looked and he said, where would my favor rest? And he finds Israel. He says, my favor will rest on you and you will be a blessing to all those you come into contact with. And we see this even back in Genesis 12 and and, and, and God's declaration to Abram. He said, of all the faces of the people of the earth, you will be my treasure possession. But listen to what he says. He says, it was not because you were more in number than all the people of the earth that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So we see that in the, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, this idea of being chosen, of being holy, and of being beloved finds its place first on the people of Israel before it ever finds its way to us. So then the question becomes, how do these characteristics, how do these things described here find their way to us? Is it because we're most numerous? Is it because we're most lovely? <laughs> no. It finds its way to us because of Christ. So God doesn't move directly from Israel and then come to the church and say, listen, uh, Potter family, you guys are chosen, you're holy, you're precious, you're beloved. No, he comes first to us through the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, we see a variety of different references to these same things. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, Peter writes of Jesus and he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen. And precious. We come to God by virtue of the man Jesus. And in this declaration God says he has seen his son. And he has declared him to be chosen and precious. John 6 and verse 69. It says that he is the holy one of God. So how are we made holy? We're not made holy by, by doing right things. We're not made holy by right behavior. You're not made holy by paying attention. You are made holy through Christ, who God declares is the Holy One of God. And Jesus is beloved. There's this great moment in Jesus' baptism when uh, John lowers him down into the water and he lifts him back up and the heavens open and the voice of God says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's not on you and I to please the Lord. It's not on you and I to satisfy God. He is pleased in Jesus. And he's pleased with you and I in so much as we find ourselves resting and trusting in his goodness. Amen? This should be a liberating message for us. This should be this incredibly uh, freeing message of us where we find ourselves this being our identity. That in Christ you are chosen. 
Lord, all men and women of your life and your children and your parents and your family and your friends may reject you. They may cast you off. In Christ, you are chosen. People may look at your behavior and say you're a hapless nitwit and a failure and you continually get all things wrong. You would say that my holiness is not found in my good behavior. My holiness only ever rests in Jesus, the one who is holy, the one who is perfect, and the one in whom the favor of God always rests. And that's where I find my holiness and that's where I find my completeness. I'm chosen in him. I am holy in him. And check this out. You are loved in him. Our experience with love is a blessed and a terrible thing. We've experienced the love of our parents. We've experienced their disdain. We've experienced the love of our friends. And we've experienced their out-and-out rejection. But what we're called to trust and rely on isn't the love of people that will fail us. It's not your brightest, most exuberant, most wonderful experience of love that you've ever had and ever encountered in this world. Our call for this love that we are to rest in is the love that is unfailing because it is given to us. It is lavished upon us by God through Jesus and his love never fails. His love never disappoints. His love in this moment finds you where you are struggling to do the right thing. And who in the world knows what that even is anymore? That's where his love finds you. And by extension of this, we recognize that God would have us be willing extensions of his love, freely lavishing his love on all those around us in the midst of the communities he's placed us in. And this is why life is difficult. Because communities themselves find themselves, even especially in this moment, trying to pull themselves apart at the very fabric of who they are. And they will succeed if they find themselves being united in ideology. They will succeed if they find themselves being united in a shared experience. They will succeed if they find themselves being united in anything other than Christ. They will succeed. Churches will fail. Friendships will shatter. Families will be torn apart. They will only succeed and last if they find their union in Christ. It's so incredibly important we not get this wrong. There's so many things right now that you and I can disagree on. There's so many things right now that we can go different ways on. What we can't afford to get wrong It's the faith tether we have together in Christ. Amen? And we have to find commonality in this. We must not grow weary of holding fast to Christ, knowing he will never grow weary holding fast to us. He gives us our identity. He says, you're chosen, you're holy, you're beloved. And notice this, he gives your identity before he ever tells you what you need to put on. He reminds you of who you are before he ever asks you to do anything. He says, you're chosen, you're holy, you are beloved. This is who you are in him. When God sees you, he sees you through Christ. And in the midst of these things, he asks for you to appropriate unto yourself the characteristics of Jesus. Now listen, we are being reformed, remade into the image of our creator. 
right? So God is actively working in our hearts, getting rid of sinful desires, getting rid of these things that dishonor him, getting rid of all of these things that are unholy and that are a distraction from the gospel. And he reminds us of who we are, and then he comes to us and he gives us this list that we see here and we see in Ephesians and elsewhere. And the first thing he says, you need to put on compassionate heart. We need to be willing to see people that we disagree with, people that we would rather not spend a great deal of time with, and allow our hearts to be broken for them. We need to be willing and desirous and in some sense ask God, God, would you give me a heart that is moved, a heart that is burdened from people that don't parrot everything I say? God, would you, would you call me into difficult circumstances? Would you keep me in difficult relationships so that I can display your love? Our hearts need to be hearts that are compassionate. There's no shortage of people that are walled off with hard hearts and solid rock-fast uh, attitudes right now and opinions. Solely, so staunchly holding to their opinions that they have no right ability to engage somebody and even begin to show them whether or not their heart is compassionate. Because for them, the rules of engagement are you have to believe this, 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 and this. We cannot start relationships and continue in relationships with people if the rules for engagement are agreeing right down the list of all these various things with us. We know who we are in Him. And then He says to us, you must have compassionate hearts. He says we need to put on kindness. Now, Romans 2 and verse 4 tells us that it is God's kindness is intended to draw you and I to repentance. God's kindness is intended to draw you and I to faith, that God has, has extended his kindness to us. God has held back his wrath, destined for us, headed for us, because you and I, by virtue of who we are, we are lost, we are wayward, we are admired in sin. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are dead and we liked it that way. It's to dead people. It's to wayward people. It's to rebels against the Lord that he extends his kindness. God doesn't extend his kindness to this, this group full of people who are uh, just desirous to be his neighbor, right? God isn't looking down and saying, I just need some really just wonderful people who I can show my kindness to. No, God looks down from heaven and he sees wayward rebels. And those wayward rebels he lavishes his kindness upon. Now, the argument that Paul makes over and over and over again uh, through this and elsewhere is because you have, God has been kind to you, you can be kind to others. Because God has been compassionate to you, because Christ has demonstrated this, and you're being remade in his image, you should find yourself being kind to others. Because he has been humble. We read in Philippians 2, 3, that Christ humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. Some of, some of us, in how we consider ourselves and how you imagine who you are, have an enlarged sense of greatness. Even a large sense of how awesome you are. And, and some of you, that's just because you're not married and you don't have children. People to remind you that you're not really that great. You're not really that amazing. You need better friends who will remind you of your complete adequacy. Or inadequacy in some of our cases. 
but humility is something we should strive for. In Micah 6, there's this request on the part of the prophet, and he's asking, in essence, what, what do you want, God? What do you want me to do? So he runs down through this list of things that he presumes God would desire. He presumes God would delight in. He says, what does the Lord desire? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God most high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be blessed with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We could be so much more impactful if we would delight in being humble. We could be so much more impactful if when we espouse our opinions and how we see the world and and, and how this works and how that works, if we would just introduce into it a touch, just a dash of humility. But humility enters in the possibility that we might be able to engage in free interchange of ideas with someone else of a differing opinion. Humility finds in us that we would value other people. Humility finds in us that we would find our worth in Jesus and not in how people see us. Neither in our successes, nor in our overcoming of our inadequacies, our overcoming of our failures. We are called as the people of God, chosen, holy, and beloved, to put on humility. To put on humility. Jesus, who came lowly and gentle, calls us through the words of Paul to put on meekness. And lastly, he says, patience. Man, if I could be perfectly honest with you, I despise patience. Uh, Patience is not something I've ever particularly enjoyed. Be it the fact that children are taught patience by parents wrapping perfectly good presents, which would have been awesome for them to have at the moment they were purchased, but instead they place them under a tree in such a way as to teach children patience. Don't unwrap that. You've got to wait a month. We're going to teach you patience and joy. You know what it taught me? It taught me to carefully unwrap things, see what it was, and then wrap it back up and tell my parents, you know what I really like? Nobody did that? Your kids are going to do it this year. I'm sorry for that. (laughs) Patience values other people. Patience values their time over your time. Patience lets them know that you hear them, whether or not you agree with them. In a community, a community of faith must have patience with one another. We have to. Because what we're going to find over the course of time, and especially in this moment right now, is that your church leaders are going to make decisions you disagree with. People in this body are going to make decisions you disagree with. And if you are not patient with them, you're going to leave. You're going to get frustrated. 
You're going to move from talking about their decisions to just straight up talking about them. It's going to move from saying, I can't believe they're making people do this, to I can't believe they are this. His word calls us to be patient. We are all experiencing life together, amen? We're all experiencing this moment together at this time, amen? Listen. If any of you in here are a time traveler from the future and you have expertise in 2020, see me now. Don't wait. I don't want you leaving. Stand up now and tell me how this thing plays out and some sweet stock tips. That would be great. I'm going to tithe off of it, but for real. Listen, we've got to be patient with one another in this moment. In fact, we've got to always be patient with one another. Because he comes in and he tells us, why do you have to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? Because the command in here is to bear with one another. Now part of what this looks like is staying together with one another. It, it's, it's decidedly easy to bear up with someone, to bear people you never come into contact with, right? It's easy to bear up with, with people that you never come into contact with because you have no opportunity for disagreement. I had somebody tell me this week, you, you know, Facebook has this wonderful tool that you can just snooze somebody for 30 days. You find somebody writing things, posting pictures of cats or whatever it is, and you're like, I'm done with them. The only cat I like is a tiger. The only tiger I like is a tiger eating cats. Right? If this is, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Lord. You can snooze people and they say, listen, sometimes I snooze people and then 30 days later they come back around and I see them pop up and I'm like, I still don't like them, I unfollow them. And then if I think about them later, I unfriend them. We've taken that, that, that social media practice and we bought it into our real world, real world friendships and practice. When somebody says something you disagree with, you divorce yourself from them. You want nothing to do with them. Friend groups realigning, moving from church to church because you don't want to be around these people anymore. I've got bad news for you. Even though this word here was written to one church, it holds across all churches. And so this word, in a real sense, would say Christians have a responsibility to bear with other Christians. This got a lot more difficult. Listen, I finally found a church I can go to with people I don't disagree with. You just don't know their opinions yet. They're still being kind to you. They're still wooing you. Give them a chance. They're going to be just as terrible as the people you came from. Maybe worse. And this word here says, bear with one another. As Christians, we owe it to one another to bear with one another, to support one another. Now, this isn't talking about condoning or endorsing sin. We also owe it to one another. If you find your brother or sister in sin, say, brother or sister, this is sinful. The Lord would have you to walk up out of this. But, but differences of opinion, differences of the way that we live our lives together, our instruction is to encourage one another and to bear with one another. He makes it harder. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
Now, the way the ESV renders this lets us kind of sit in this a moment and think, what are all the various ways that people have failed me? What are all the various ways that Matt has failed me since last Sunday? But listen, the, the, the word ordering of the Greek puts forgiveness ahead of the complaint. And so why is that important? It's important because we recognize that we are called to forgive even before we've fully taken in the trespass. We're called to forgive even before we've fully taken in the trespass. There is this moment when Jesus is meeting with Peter in Matthew 18, in verse 21. Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. And you, you, you can tell like in this moment, he's like, yes, that's a big number. It's seven. It's this number of perfection. He's going to be so incredibly impressed. And I've done some things to really lower the bar. And so he's going to be so impressed with my number. And Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven, but 70 t- 77 times. Or in other translations, it's 70 times seven. Not that Jesus is telling Simon Peter, you need to buy a bigger abacus so you can keep and kind of move these notches and buy a belt and kind of notch it as you move across. But he's telling him, in essence, do not keep a record of your brother's transgressions. Your brother's going to continue to fail you. Do not keep a record of your brother's transgressions. Some of us right now, have a whole host of complaints against other Christians. Some of us that are staying at home right now, the very reason you're staying at home is because you're mad as all get out. It's your leadership or other people in this church. You're mad because people are wearing masks. You're mad because people are wearing masks under requirement. You're mad because not everyone's wearing a mask. You know, some of you are just mad because you hate the word mask and you've always hated the word mask since they canceled that wonderful cartoon in the 80s. Now that's a strange one, let's talk. And some of us are just mad. We think it's our responsibility perhaps to show people our displeasure with them in their actions by displaying to them anger. The Christian's role and responsibility is to display the gospel. The Christian's role and responsibility is to be covered up with compassionate hearts, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience, so that when we encounter these people, when we encounter our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and they have wronged us. Legitimately. We stand ready to forgive. This word here of forgiving paints this picture of extending grace. Of lavishing grace upon them. And the only way we're able to do this The only way we're able to forgive people is what Paul says next. That we forgive them because we ourselves have received forgiveness. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Think about this picture of Jesus. 
Jesus beaten, Jesus weary, Jesus abused, Jesus reviled, Jesus mocked. He's hanging on the cross. And he has this moment up there on the cross where it could have been this, this, this moment of pouring out and looking at his guys and looking at his, the women who are following him and looking at the people that beat him. And in that moment, he could have said, you're wrong, but I'm coming back. But he looks to the heavens and his cry is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He forgives them freely he forgives them when they don't deserve it. He forgives them when they don't want it. That's the forgiveness that you and I have received. That God reached through the corridor of time and he plucked us out of death. You know, bestowed upon us his forgiveness. And he lavished upon us his love. And he says, this is how you forgive. This is how a community operates. This is how a community is known. That it is loving. That it is kind. That it is quick to welcome back the wanderer. That it is quick to restore the foreigner. And it stands ready to be mocked to be abused, to be persecuted, because it takes its lead from Jesus. Now Paul has been describing within this, in some sense, a, a, a type of clothing that we put on, these, these compassion hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But if this is clothing that Paul chooses to wrap it all, verse 14, in love, he says, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and this is where we'll end. Paul gives a picture of love that stands as a corrective for all of the weak, faulty, anemic attempts to extend love that you and I have been so frequently caught up in. And this is my prayer for us. That this is how people would know the men and women of Ridgecrest. It's people who are loving. People who in our disagreements we still love one another. People who in our disputes still love one another people who in the midst of being wronged would turn around and extend love to one another. Let me read these words for us and pray. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me pray for us. Father, I am thankful for your love. God, I am fearful that at times we don't display your love, we display our preference, we display our wisdom. We have on display right now our frustration. God, would you wash our hearts anew? Would you dress us in your love and send us from this place? Father, I pray for the men and women who in this hearing, in this service online or later, they don't know you, but they have seen a picture of you in Christians. Christians not putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, or humility but Christians dressing themselves in certainty, in dogmatism, in religion, and from their perspective, just hatred and repugnance. How would you make your way through that mess? Would you make your way through that terrible picture? Would you show them the gospel? that you sent your son Jesus to redeem wayward humanity. He submitted himself to death, taking on the penalty and the punishment of their sins. And God, that you raised him up to newness, that he has been resurrected, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, you have put to death the consequences of sin. And you freely, freely extend to humanity forgiveness and salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And we submit these things to you in his name. Amen.